Hello, St Andrews. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. That's where we're going to set up camp for these next few weeks. Numbers chapter 11 in the Old Testament. And uh, there's an outline and you can get that either by clicking the link on the YouTube stream or you can find it on our website as well under the St Andrews Live section. So check that out. I'm going to pray for us as we dive into Numbers 11 together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind and good. We thank you that in your kindness and your goodness towards us, you speak. You speak a word that knows us far better than we know ourselves, a word of authority, the word of our creator and our king and our saviour. And so we pray, Father, that you would humble our hearts now, quiet them from any distractions that may be in our minds and hearts. Help us to hear you and to heed you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes something that seems innocuous can actually be deadly. Sometimes the danger is hidden from view. In the years that followed the Second World War, Australia was booming as an economy, uh, riding under, on the back of plentiful natural resources. For, for many, especially those in those natural resources industries, it was a brilliant time, a prosperous time. One such group were those who worked in the Australian asbestos mines, giant mines supplying not just Australia, but the globe with asbestos and demand for asbestos was surging. And it was a brilliant job to be in. And yet as they worked the mines, the longer they did, the more they breathed in an atmosphere that was actually spreading carcinogens into their body and their blood that would set off a ticking time bomb that for some of them would not go off until the late 80s, 90s. Sometimes a danger is hidden. Sometimes, of course, dangers are obvious, aren't they? And obvious dangers, the, the funnel web, the brown snake, or whatever it may be, we, we do our best to avoid such dangers. But, but when they're hidden, uh, then the danger can hit us unexpectedly. And I think the same is true in the Christian life. Sometimes uh, the danger of sin in our life as Christians is very obvious. We see some sins that we see the damage they'll do. We'll, see the destruction they could do to us and, and others, uh, but some sins, well, they seem harmless. And for the next few weeks, we're going to explore one such sin. I speak of the sin of grumbling, of complaint. And on a scale of sins that we fret about and uh, are concerned that someone might catch us in that sin, grumbling is, is hardly one of them, is it? And it's not for a lack of it. We are world champion grumblers. You name it, we complain about it. We complain about our politicians. We complain about the traffic. We complain about the restrictions or the lack of restrictions. We complain about the weather. We complain about how tired we are. And then, of course, we complain about people who complain. We all do it. And so it can't be that bad. It's, it's just the air we breathe. It's everywhere. But what if, as in those asbestos mines, what if the air we breathe is not harmless but deadly? Now, that sounds like an overreaction, doesn't it? It sounds like some sort of preaching hyperbole, but no. That which we make light of, the Bible fails to see the joke. I wonder if you heard it in our reading from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10 says this, Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, so that if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And when the Bible sees the sin of grumbling as prevalent as it is in our lives, it says, don't, don't think this is nothing. 
And so for the next three Sundays, we're, we're going to set up camp in Numbers 11, literally with God's people camped in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And we're going to do it to take seriously this sin of grumbling. And as we start, let, let me put us in the picture of the book of Numbers. Some of you may have read Numbers, others not. I do encourage you to, to read perhaps up to the section that we're looking at, chapter 11. But if I was to sum up Numbers in one sentence, it would be this. Numbers is the story of God's presence and his provision and his patience for a grumbling people. His presence, his provision and his patience for a grumbling people. That's what the book of Numbers is all about. And it actually covers some 39 years in the history of God's people as they journeyed out of slavery from Egypt, rescued by God out of slavery and now journeying to the promised land. It's a journey that we're told in the Bible should have taken them 11 days. If you look on a map, that's about how long it should have taken. And yet it took them 39 years uh, because of their unfaithfulness. And as God's people, Israel, travelled through the desert, they met along the way communities of people for whom the desert was home. They, they weren't heading to another land, that this was their land. And, and some of them along the way, as we read in the book of Numbers and in other Old Testament books, were, were drawn in and included in the people of God. Uh, the chapter before us, uh, before the one we're looking at, uh, Numbers 11, we're told of one such man, a man called Hobab. And Moses, who's the leader of God's people, Israel, actually says to Hobab, he says, this, God has promised good to us. Why don't you come with us? Why don't you come and be part of this good promise that God has for us? It, it's a drawing in of others into God's good plans. And so they went. Far from home, on the way to the promised land, they were led by their God who was with them and who promised good. And then we reach Numbers 11. Numbers 11 is actually two stories in one. Uh, verses 1 to 3 recounts the events at a place called Tibera. And verse 4 onwards is a longer story recounting the events at a place called Kibroth Hatava. Now, the first story, those first three verses, is actually very simple. The people grumble against the Lord and against his provision. The Lord responds with anger and judgment. Fire comes on the camp, first on the, on the outskirts of the camp, and, and then it begins to creep in. And Moses, the leader of God's people, has to intercede for them, and then the fire of God's judgment is calmed. Now, over the, <clears throat> the next three weeks, this simple story will help us understand the larger story that we see from verse 4 onwards. And what we're going to see is we're going to see both the power of grumbling the power it can have to grip our lives, but then also how God provides the resources we need to overcome it. That's the next couple of weeks we'll be overcoming it. Today we focus on the power of grumbling. Have a look at verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We, we never see anything but this manner. Now, if you look at verses 4 to 6 and the complaint there, well, it, it looks pretty petty, doesn't it? Just like much of our grumbling. But it's not. By the end of the chapter, if you look at verse 33, this grumbling leads to complete disaster for God's people. And do you notice this? It starts with, you see there, verse 4, uh, those who are called the rabble, which I guess that's a word we use from time to time here in Australia, isn't it? Rabble. 
and we're talking about a sort of a, 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 a disparate crowd. But here it's a very deliberate uh, and technical word describing these communities who lived in the desert, who, who weren't part of God's people, weren't part of that promise, weren't heading to the promised land. And that's where the grumbling starts and it spreads like some airborne disease into the hearts and minds of the Israelites. Israel, we're told here, complain about their hardships in the desert compared to what they'd experienced in Egypt. Egypt is almost painted like a land flowing with milk and honey or at least free veggies and fish. It's such a banal complaint we have in front of us. It sounds like a child moaning at dinner time, oh, not this again. Why do we have to have this again? But remember where it leads. And remember 1 Corinthians says, God isn't sharing this just for our information or interest. He's sharing us to warn us as we head to God's promised future that he has for us, as we journey on that path to know that as we stand, be careful that you don't wander. Be careful that you don't fall. And so what I want to do just for a few minutes now is to draw out four implications, four things that I think we need to learn as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us to learn, to heed the warning from this, to see the power of grumbling. Here's the first lesson. We see here that grumbling is contagious. Grumbling, uh, if you read these chapters, it fills the atmosphere of the desert. It's everywhere. And, and remember how it spreads? Verse 4, it begins with this rabble. It begins with the people for whom the desert is all there is in life. There, there, there's no future on the horizon. There's no promise that they're heading to. This, this is life. And yet ultimately there are people who know that there must be more to life. They're craving more. And so the sound that comes from such a life, well, grumbling. And we should see the parallel in our own experience. Ours is a world filled with people who are living for this world. This desert life is all there is. And all that this world offers is all that they have to look forward to And yet they crave more than this world can give. And so it's not a surprise that grumbling results. I mean, take our country, uh, if not our world at the moment, uh, in this strange season that we've been in. So much of what we rely on, uh, so much of what we take comfort in, uh, isn't there at the moment, or or it seems to have changed, and that change kind of looks permanent at the moment. And, and as a country, in one sense, we're, we're, we're scrambling around. We're looking for a stimulus to right it all. Everything will go back to normal if we can just pull the right levers. Or we personally, perhaps we just look for a holiday to calm the anxiety and the stress of this season. Or we look for safety from, from the pandemic. Or perhaps we're over that and we're looking for freedom from the restrictions just to feel normal again. We are a nation and a world looking around the desert, hoping that there will be more than there is. Every facet of human life is marked by disquiet. That's the experience of life this side of heaven. That's the reality of life when you live estranged from the God who promises that future. That's life in the wilderness. But in the wilderness, we're told here in Numbers, there is an amazing community, God's community, his people, who have been given a living hope, a a certain future hope. And it's not been given to them because they deserve it. They're not entitled to it. It's given to them because God's promised it and he's faithful. And so they are to live like strangers in the wilderness, those who are not home in the wilderness but heading home. And on their journey home, they're they're told repeatedly, take care. 
Head this path, don't wander, don't fall, listen, take care, and especially take care not to succumb to the atmosphere of disquiet that they will hear and feel all around them. An atmosphere that we're told in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 2, which paints a very similar picture, wages war on our soul, the soul that is meant to trust God's promises. But how hard it is to avoid the atmosphere around us. Verse 4, Again, the Israelites now started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. The grumbling has passed on to those who have hope and should know better, and yet they don't. And it even, we're told here, affects their leader. They grumble about their lack of food or the variety of their food, and, well, he grumbles about them. If you read verses 11 to 15 of Numbers 11, Moses refers to I or me or my some 20 times in five verses. Consumed by his apparent hardships, he he loses sight of God's constant provision, the the mercies that God gave that were new every morning. And instead of trusting God to do good as he had promised to, instead of trusting the good that he'd even told Hobab in the chapter before, come with us, God is good. Now he says, God, are you really good? Grumbling is contagious. This community is not some clean zone, the Christian community, God's people. We are surrounded by people affected by grumbling and we too are affected by it. And verse 10, do you see where the grumbling mainly happens? I love this verse, such a a brilliant picture of our experience, I think. Moses heard the people of every family grumbling at the entrance of their own tent. Imagine that picture. A whole bunch of tents in the campground and everyone standing out the front of the tent grumbling. Uh, It happens at home, doesn't it? That's where grumbling happens. Ever felt that? Uh, We grumble about all sorts of things, our day at work or the kids or the government or our neighbour or each other, you name it, we grumble about it. Now for the next two weeks, we are going to see after, after this week how to overcome this contagion of grumbling. But for now, from this first lesson, seeing it's how contagious it is, let me simply say this. If grumbling is contagious, and it is, it means that in the words of 1 Peter, we need to live as strangers in this world. We need to live with great care. Take care in the grumbling culture you may experience in your workplace, not to participate in it. Take care in the school community, if you're part of a school community that so often uh, has grumbling attitudes. Uh, take care amongst friends if that's part of the way friendship groups work. The air we breathe is so often suffused with grumbling. Take care, you who stand on the hope you have for the future, lest you fall. Now here's a second lesson. Grumbling is caused by unbelief. Grumbling actually comes, we see here in Numbers 11, from a flawed view of the world in which the past and the present are misread. And the future is actually, well, it's faded from sight. And we're going to see a lot more about that next week. But even here, have a look, verse 5. The the past for the Israelites, uh, they're viewing it through, well, rose-coloured glasses at best. Uh, See verse 5? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, and the cucumbers and the melons, leeks, onions and garlic. Oh, Egypt the great. But you've got to ask, if it was such a glorious place, why is it that the Lord, Lord heard their desperate cries for rescue every day that they were there. Why were they so desperate to leave? It was because they were slaves there. Had it slipped their mind that 
as they lived in Egypt, they were abject slaves, living, well, a purposeless life, trying to make bricks without straw and spurred on by whips and killed if they didn't and kept alive by these fish and veggies so that they could continue as slaves. And even their view of the present is flawed. Do you see it there, verse 6? But, for, but now we have lost our appetite. We, we never see anything but this manner. It's all God gives us. Truth is, and we'll speak more about this next week, their lives were actually full of provision from God. Every day, new mercies from him. But infected with this disease of grumbling, they just couldn't see it and they wanted more. And if you want to see what this grumbling in the present looks like up close, and I think this is a searching bit for us. Have a look at verse 4. Two words, I think, capture the grumbling perfectly. They are these two words. If only. They're the two words that I think drive dissatisfaction in our world. In their case, it was if only we had meat to eat. If only. I wonder if you've ever said those words or felt those words. If only that thing and then everything would be better. They can all too easily be the words that drive us. If only I could find a job, or if only I could get a better job, if only I didn't have to work with that person, if only I'd gone to the doctor at the first sign of pain, if only we'd had more time, if, if only it wasn't so lonely, if only people understood me, if, if only things got easier for once, if only we could afford to do this, if only things were like they used to be. If only what then, says God? Here's the challenge. Next time you find yourself grumbling at the entrance of your own tent, ask, what is my if only right now? What is my if only that if I had it all, it'd change everything, it'd all be good. Grumbling is caused by unbelief that looks for something else for deliverance, something else for fulfilment, something other than the God who has rescued us, who carries us and has promised to lead us home. If only what then, says God, take care lest you who stand should fall. Here's a third lesson. Grumbling is actually the sound a slave makes. Now, this sin of grumbling is, is actually like all sins. The Bible tells us that sin enslaves us. It, it has a power over us. I wonder if you believe that about sin in your life, that, that actually you're not totally in control. <laughs> Uh, we, we hear someone like grumbling and think, no, no, I'm not enslaved by it. I, yeah, I grumble from time to time, perhaps more than I should, but, but I could stop any time. But the Bible won't have a bar of that. We're told in the New Testament, anyone who sins is actually a slave to sin. Sin has a power. Sin wages war on our soul. You see, actually, when I sin with my mind, when I make the decision that, I, that I'm going to grumble, uh, over time it shrinks my rationality and uh, I grow more and more able to justify my actions. I'm grumbling because of this person or that situation. That, that's to blame. And when I sin with my heart, what happens over time is it starts to sear my heart and I stop to feel or sense the damage that it's doing. And when I sin with my will, it shatters my self-control so that I'm more and more prone to do it. I am, well, in the words of Proverbs, like a city without walls. Sin enslaves us, and including the sin of grumbling. Grumbling is actually the sound a slave makes, the sort of sound that Israel should have made in Egypt, not as they headed to the promised land. Now, you may think, yeah, yeah, I grumble from time to time, but, I, but I'm hardly a slave to it. Well... The scriptures say this, try living this week without grumbling, without any grumbling. Try it. And not just when all is well and the sun is shining. Try, it, try not to grumble when you're in the valley. Try not to grumble when faced with disappointment. 
Try not to grumble when the pressures come and the stress comes and you feel the frailty of life and you experience what, well, life this side of heaven is like. Try not to grumble then. Now, next week, we'll see how God is going to help us and give us the resources we need to overcome the power of grumbling. But for now, we must see how addictive it is. You see that pattern in verses 4 to 6? Verse 4 for Israel, it began with craving, the heart that says, if only. And then verse 5, the heart goes on to what it thinks will fill that craving. This is what I need. If, if only we had food without cost. Yes, that's what I need. And we grow fixed on it. And so much so that verse 6, we lose our appetite for what God is actually giving us. And you see God's response? Verse 18, now the Lord will give you meat. If only we had meat. Now the Lord will give you meat and you'll eat it. You'll not just eat it for one day or two or five, ten or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. See what God is doing with Israel? He is giving them over to the sin of grumbling. That's how it enslaves us. God says, you want meat to be your if only, rather than the God who brought you out of Egypt, rather than the God who provides for you each day. Well, then have your fill. And you'll have your fill, but you'll grow to loathe it because it's not what's going to fulfill you. We crave in our grumbling what we think will take us above our current situation. If only I had that, then oh, I'd be so good. It's the logic of an addict. And then we grow more tolerant to the effect of our chosen drug. And the more I get, the more I need to feel contented and not grumble anymore. You ever felt that in your life? You name it, health, wealth, friends, holidays. Crave these things more than your God and you'll make the sound a slave makes. God says to Israel, have your fill of this thing and you, you want till it comes out your nostrils. Because he says this, our idols are actually, they make loathsome gods. Take seriously, we're told here in Numbers 11, the sin of grumbling. It is not a small problem. It is all around us. It comes from an unbelieving heart and it is a sign that we who have been set free by Jesus and are on our journey home are living like slaves again. <laughs> Uh, one final uh, lesson, and I'll finish with this. Uh, this is really flagging where we're going to go next week. Uh, grumbling only has one cure. Grumbling has one cure, and like many diseases, the cure is in the cause. Have a look at verse 20 with me of Numbers 11. Speaking of this meat that Israel grumbled after, God says this. He said, literally, it says this. You will grow to loathe it because you loathe me. You see what God is saying? He's saying you've replaced me with, well, fish and veggies, bread. God's cure for grumblers ultimately, for those who crave whatever else before him, is to again offer something that is genuinely satisfying himself. He does it because, well, in the words of uh, the writer C.S. Lewis, we're far too easily pleased and he knows that. God says the reason you grumble is you're trying to satisfy yourself in the end with junk. Instead of, well, in the words of Psalm 34, verse 8, instead of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, he's your fulfilment. There is a cure for grumbling. Taste and see the goodness of God. The, the secret of freedom from grumbling is not the vow to stop. That's not going to work. It's being satisfied again in God. Taste how good God is. That's what we're going to see in the next few weeks. Taste his love, his faithfulness, his patience, his purpose, his promises. 
Taste his grace towards you, his holiness in all things. Taste his timely help whenever we need it. Taste his glorious son, the Lord Jesus. Who, do you know what he says of himself in John 6? He says, I'm the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. That's the bread we need. The Christian answer to life in the wilderness, filled with hardships as it is, is not stoicism or pretense, but tasting again and seeing again that the Lord is good. The only time sitting at table with God and feeding on him as he meets us in his word, as he's doing right now, only that, feeding on his goodness that is revealed to us there, only that can guard your heart from grumbling in the end. The more you taste and see his goodness, the more you'll grow to crave him and he will satisfy. So that when those if only moments come, and they will, you'll have a new answer, a new place to go. And it won't be your career or your health or your wealth or whatever, but to the Lord who promises this, delight yourself in me and I will give you the desire of your heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you know us better than we know ourselves and you know the dangers even when we can't see them. And so we thank you that you speak a word that speaks into that danger and calls us back from it and calls us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.